Well then, trusting in God for his help and guidance, let's uh, turn to that passage in the New Testament, in the Gospel according to John, and uh, chapter 6. That's page 1645 in the Church Bible. John chapter 6, and reading again at verse 11, where we read that Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when he had given thanks, he distributed the loaves to the disciples, and then the disciples to those sitting down. And, of course, the uh, miracle as a whole, but particularly in the light of these words. Now, of course, over the last three Sabbaths, we've been considering the manna that God gave to the children of Israel. Bread, of course, which God gave them directly from heaven. And really, before uh, just leaving that manna, I think it would be right uh, just to move forward Uh, nearly 1,500 years from the occasion on which God first gave that manna to this occasion before us here, when at last God sends the true bread from heaven. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. After all, he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. But of course, he says, whoever eats of this bread of life will live forever. And I'd like particularly to look at Christ as the bread of life in light of the miracle that he performs here in John chapter 6, the famous miracle of the loaves and fishes, which caused so much wonder and so much controversy too. So may the Lord help us as we look at it and seek to learn from it for the feeding, for the nourishment of our own souls with the word of God. And I think the first thing that we need to do is not really an easy thing in a way, but the first thing we need to do is to establish the order of events that took place on that day when Christ performed the miracle. The fact of the matter is that we have four accounts of it. This is actually the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, I suppose, in a way that leads us to think of the importance of this miracle. Uh, John refers to it as a sign. In fact, just by the way, and as I have mentioned before, John records seven distinctive signs in his own Gospel. In fact, you could make the case that he organises his whole gospel around these seven signs. Seven, of course, means completion, fullness. So what we have is a complete picture of the glory and power of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. All the signs show that. This is the only one that's recorded in all four gospels. And when we piece these four accounts together, 
we don't just get a, a plainer view of the events as they actually happened, but I think the lessons that the Lord teaches come before us far more plainly. Now, I think when you read John alone, perhaps you get the least chronological view. So the way I'll be referring it to it is just bringing the four accounts together. And as I say, I hope when we do, we'll see things more plainly. Now, the fact is that these events themselves happen just immediately following the events that we looked at uh, last Sabbath night, and indeed the night before, when John the Baptist was uh, solemnly and sadly executed at the command of King Herod. You'll remember that I closed last Sabbath night by saying that when the Lord heard the news himself of of the death of his forerunner and his own cousin too, according to the flesh, We read that he withdrew uh, to a deserted place in order to be by himself. Again, when we take all the Gospels together, we'll discover that he took the disciples with him too, so that they would, as the Bible says, also be able to rest for a while. The Gospel writers tell us that so many people were constantly coming and going that the disciples hardly had any time to eat and so he took them apart so that they could rest a while and it was his intention once they had gone apart to separate himself further and just to be on his own with the Lord. Now we can all understand that. As the (laughs) captain of our salvation desired it, so too do the rest of us in the Christian army. There are times when we need to be on our own with God, with our own thoughts and our own prayers. He did a similar thing on the very last night of his life when he took the disciples with him into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. You'll remember he took Peter, James and John with him, but even then he left them and went a little further, we're told, to pray by himself. So that enemy was their intention. But The fact was that there was no real rest for the Lord or for his disciples because when they set out on their boat to cross over to the other side, people saw them leaving and desired uh, to follow them. And they did. They set out straight away and they followed him on foot. And some of them ran so quickly that they reached the other side before the Lord and the disciples had reached. And the fact is that Uh, News was spreading so quickly about the Lord's ministry and its power that a a greater number went out uh, to hear him on this occasion than at any other time. The reason for that, the Gospels tell us, is because the Passover was near. Now, of course, every time the Passover is near, there are crowds. Crowds coming from everywhere. They would gather from various places in Galilee, come to the main villages, make their way down the main road uh, towards Jerusalem. And on this occasion, because they are hearing of the prophet and the claims that many are making that he is the prophet, the Messiah, the Son of God, they want to hear for themselves and they want to see this mighty work for themselves. And the fact of the matter is that on this occasion, around about 5,000 men have made their way to find Christ and the disciples. That figure does not include the woman 
and the children. They often did go to Passover, but the law didn't require the women and the children to go. Uh, sometimes we know they did. Certainly Mary used to accompany Joseph to the Passover. We're told it was their custom, both of them, to go. So I think taking a, conf- a fairly conservative figure, you could say that there are about eight to 10,000 people all together who are converging on Christ and the disciples at the very time when he and they want solitude and peace and rest. I'll say something about that, God willing, in a moment. But when the Lord sees this vast amount of people coming towards them, he sees this as a time uh, for two things. It's time, first of all, for a test. You know, we've been seeing lots of tests over the last few Lord's days. That shouldn't surprise us because tests do come thick and fast in the Christian life. He sees the opportunity for a test and also the opportunity for a miracle. A test to discover where they are and a miracle to bring them on. After all, that's what God always does in his great grace and mercy. Now, first of all, the test. Christ foresaw that such a vast group of people gathering at this time of day would be in need of food. <coughs> and of course he sees and discerns that immediately. And so before any teaching or any healing or anything begins, he turns to Philip. And he says, where can we buy bread for them to eat? Now, we would expect Philip to ask him that question. Um, and we'll come to that. But he asks Philip. And John expressly tells us that he said this to Philip to test him. Now, what the nature of the test is there, we can't really tell right away. But we're told that he said this to him to test him because he himself knew what he would do. So this miracle is planned, it's in his mind, it's in his heart, but he first of all turns to Philip and says, where shall we buy bread so that these may eat? Now Philip answers and he says, well, he says 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for this vast crowd so that every one of them might even just have a little 200 denarii worth of bread. Now, where does he get that figure from? Well, some suggest that that was the amount of money that Christ and the disciples had in that bag. Of course, it's important to remember that they did live on the charity and kindness of the Lord's people on their travels. Judas, of course, famously was in charge of that bag, infamously He was also responsible for siphoning off from that bag from time to time and making himself rich and buying property with it. An awful thought. But nonetheless, some thought that perhaps this is the sum of money that they had in the bag. But I'll tell you a difficulty in connection with that. And that is that I I think we can be reasonably sure that Christ and the disciples never had that much in their bag at any given time. 
200 denarii is actually a lot of money. One denarii was the fair day's wage for a labourer. A fair day's wage for a labourer. So I don't know. Give that a rough figure today. Let's say if someone was casually labouring, let's just say for the sake of argument, you would give them £50. Well, 200 denarii would come to around about £10,000. Which is actually a reasonable figure, considering that you have eight to 10,000 people present. So you are effectively just a little bit in excess of a pound to feed each person. It's not a bad stab at it, but Philip says you need effectively over 10,000 pounds to feed 10,000 people. Now, I'm quite sure that that's just Philip's calculation, nothing to do with the amount of money in the bank. I'm quite sure they have nowhere near that amount. But Philip just leaves it at that. And more to the point, the Lord just leaves it at that. He says, no more. So we don't know what the test was, and therefore we don't know whether Philip passed it or not. We can't really possibly say at the moment, did he pass or did he fail? But as the crowd gathers, uh, Christ, we're told, was moved with compassion. That's what the Gospel writers tell us. And he began to heal the sick amongst them, so there were plenty amongst them who were unwell. And the Gospel writers too tell us that he taught them many things about the kingdom. Of God. Now, that's tiring work. You'll sometimes discover when you're doing the work of the Lord in any way at all that it's tiring work. Even when you're witnessing sometimes to somebody, you'll discover afterwards that you can feel quite exhausted. Far more exhausted than you are when you're having a normal conversation with somebody. I suppose there's a reason for that. There's more than one reason for it. I would reckon the devil possibly has something to do with it too, because whenever you do any work, for Christ, he's present. He's very present. But the interesting thing here is that although Christ wanted rest and needed rest, and though the disciples too wanted rest and needed rest, the fact is that they just didn't get it. It wasn't time for rest, even if they wanted it. But God saw to it that they had sufficient strength and sufficient zeal to enable them to do the work that he's placed before them in providence. And that reminds us too that sometimes even if we are tired and uh, we feel that we need to step aside, there are occasions when in such a situation the Lord will put a particular situation in your path, a particular opportunity and a particular duty which would be wrong for us to turn down. Perhaps it's not always easy to discern the difference between what we can turn down and what we can't. But when a soul comes to you in need, can we turn that down? If someone was to come to you and say, well, I want to know something about the bread of life, or my soul is troubling me, I, I need to find out about eternity, I need to know about heaven and hell. Or if a soul comes to you and say, what must I do in my situation to be saved? Are you really going to say, well, I'm a little bit tired just now, but 
Perhaps we can discuss something like that another time. No, it's not possible. We have to trust God to give us the strength and the seal to see that through. I was reminded in thinking about these things of the uh, last great national revival of 1851. Seems a long, long time ago. It is a long, long time ago. It's over 150 years. And um, that was the last great national revival in, in the United Kingdom. Of course, there have been revivals since in all kinds of places, not least here in the Isle of Lewis, but that was the last great national revival, and it's a long, long time ago. Sorry, did I say 51? It's 59. The revival of 1859. And it was truly national. I mean, from Orkney in the north down to Dumfries in the south, from Aberdeen and Dundee in the east, right across to the Western Isles in the west. In fact, it's right to say it was an international revival, not just in Ireland, but America and elsewhere. Now, I remember reading accounts of that revival just a few years ago. And uh, interestingly, the, the account that I was reading had to do with Campbellton, which is hardly a place that we associate with gospel blessing. And it hasn't been associated with gospel blessing for a long, long time. But we're told at that particular time when the revival started in Campbellton that the churches were packed, all the churches were packed. All the churches were packed every night of the week. They were packed with people who were coming, deciding the way of salvation. We're told that there were ministers there who had to call in ministers from other localities, that they weren't sleeping, getting an hour or maybe an hour or two here and there, working day or night, either preaching, conducting meetings, or speaking with souls, hundreds of them, wanting to know how to be saved. Now, of course, it would be wonderful uh, to see such a thing again. And, of course, we believe we will see such a thing again. The Bible allows us no room for pessimism on these matters. I know things can rise and fall, and things can certainly fall quite far. And there's no doubt that when they do fall quite far, we sometimes feel that they can never rise again. That's just the way it looks, and that's what I refer to in my prayer. Uh, when Ezekiel was in Babylon at the beginning of the captivity and he, he just felt so completely discouraged by the reality around him. How could it be that the people of God could be turfed out of their nation, losing their city, losing their temple and finding themselves just to be a kind of a run in the middle of nowhere, well, not in the middle of nowhere, but in the middle of hostile alien territory, Babylon. A city renowned for its sensuality and its pride and its godlessness. And he looked around him at the disconsolate, dejected group of Christian people and felt that nothing, nothing could ever live again. And of course the Lord put him into a trance. And he saw the famous vision of the valley full of dry bones. Dry bones all around. Interestingly, in the vision, God made Ezekiel look around on every side so that he saw nothing everywhere he looked but dry bones. That's how we feel too. We just look around and we feel it's all so dry and it's all so dead. And then the voice of the Almighty comes to the prophet and says, Son of man, he says, can these bones live? Oh, Ezekiel says, you know. That's not a yes or a no, is it? It's not a yes or a no. 
It's, it's you know. In other words, it's almost, it's almost as though the prophet said, I know the correct answer is yes, but I can't bring myself to say it. How often we feel that. We know the correct answer, but we don't feel it. We can hardly mouth it. But then, of course, there was a rattling and a shaking, and God took the bones together. And there's this almost ghastly scene where you see the bones coming together. There's flesh and sinew, muscle, tissue, skin, and they stand upright, still dead. And then God said to Ezekiel, now he says, I want you to pray to the breath or to speak to the breath, to the wind, to the spirit, to breathe upon this army. And Ezekiel prayed. And the breath of God came into the army and they lived. And that was a picture of the revival that was just coming in Babylon, which would eventually lead to the people of God going back to Zion as men that dreamed. Because the Lord had again, as he did so many years before in Egypt, he had turned their bondage into liberty, their darkness to light, and given them praise and rejoicing in the Lord. Son of man, can these bones live? Now we too believe that there can be such a mighty work. And when that mighty work comes, we'll be glad to be tired in it too. We'll be glad to be tired in it. It'll be a case of rejoicing when people want to speak to ourselves. And it'll be a blessed work to be engaged in. And who wouldn't want to be tired doing the work of the Lord? Which minister wouldn't gladly forsake his rest and his sleep because there was a crowd of people at his door, even through the night, wanting to know the way of salvation? I can certainly say to you that I would be glad to get up and speak to you about that. And the disciples and the Lord had renewed strength because that was God's provision for them. They wanted rest, they needed rest, but God said, not yet. There is a labour first and a rest afterwards. And if God calls us to that, he will give us that rest too. <clears throat> but of course, Christ's motive comes to the fore too. We're not just told that he laboured here and the disciples but he laboured because he had compassion. <clears throat> he had compassion on them. I think it's Mark who tells us that he, did, he had that compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Our oh, friends, isn't that how we should see souls too? Uh, many of those, of course, who, who were coming to him there were, were spiritually alive, but many of them were not. Many of them needed the touch of the Holy Spirit. They needed the healing of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But he was moved with compassion for them. And I've no doubt that if our own hearts are full of compassion, then we will be ready to help too. We need compassion. And we can only find true spiritual compassion by being in touch with Christ. By seeing people as he saw people. And by recognising that just he, as he came to seek and to save that which was lost, so it's our duty too to come and to seek and to save that which is lost. What is a lost soul but what you were yourself? I mean, am I any different? Are you as a Christian tonight any different from the non-Christian who is beside you? No. Did the Lord have compassion on you? Yes. Should you not have compassion on another? Yes. 
So compassion breeds zeal and it breeds labour for the Lord. So all day is spent, as Mark says, teaching the things of the kingdom and healing. Healing and teaching always going together. And at last, after a full day, the evening came and suddenly the disciples come to Christ. And they say, well, it's time to put the crowds away. It's time that they go and find villages where they can eat some food and find some lodgings. Because you'll remember that most of that crowd are on their way to Jerusalem. They're not even from the neighboring villages. Nothing to eat, nowhere to go. And then unexpectedly Jesus says to them, there's no need for them to go anywhere. He says, you feed them. That's what he says to the disciples. You feed them. They must have looked at each other, wondering what on earth this means. And after discussing it, they come back to Christ with essentially what Philip had said earlier in the day. Shall we go and get 200 denarii food to go and give these people? Now that question is not perhaps as innocent as it seems. It's effectively saying, what is it that you're asking us to do? Do you realise how much it would cost to feed these people? Where do do you think we're going to get that? Where are we going to find the money to get such an amount of food? And then Jesus says to them very simply, well, he says, go out amongst the people and see what you can find. And they do. And when they come back, all they found is five small barley loaves and two small pickled fish, uh, kind of sardines that they used to take as a relish with them when they would just pack a bag. Of course, it was a young lad who had it. The young lad's always fascinated myself. I'm sure he's fascinated you too. Uh, Here's a boy who just uh, leaves his home and I can envisage, perhaps, that his mother just packed the bag for him. Just four little barley cakes, common food amongst the poor, and two little fish as a relish. And little does she know, I'm sure, uh, what that's going to be used for that day. Little does he know too how he's going to be used and his provision's going to be used. Little things like that are always interesting in the gospel. They're easy to pass them by, but they're so interesting because we sometimes don't know what God is going to do with very ordinary things in life. Very ordinary things in life. Sometimes when we make food, who knows who's going to be eating it that day. Uh, When Abraham, of course, sat at his tent door, three strangers came. He shouted to Sarah to quickly prepare a meal, and she prepared quite a remarkable meal in a very short space of time. But who ate that meal? God did, and two angels did. Little did Sarah realise when she was preparing it that she was going to feed the Lord and feed two angels. There are questions involved in that, but they're not for right now. The important thing is that we're told in the New Testament to be ready always to entertain strangers in case we entertain angels unawares. Who knows sometimes who we have fed? Even clothes that you've deposited in a clothing bag to give to somebody. 
who knows who that has clothed and how God has used that. Words that you spoke to someone, who knows how God used those words. We have no idea, friends. No idea at all what God does sometimes with very ordinary things. Out he goes with his little uh, prepared meal and he finds it in the hands of the Lord, feeding a multitude. Let things like that always encourage us. Let things like that always encourage us. So, of course, the disciples say, well, this is all we've got. And Christ says, well, you bring them to me. These are always good words. Uh, like he said to the man with the epileptic sons, well, he had symptoms of epilepsy, but he was demon-possessed. Bring him to me. When that happens, it all changes. Well, here, bring them to me. But before we look at what Christ did to the bread, eh, what about the test? What was the test? Did Philip pass or fail? Well, I suppose, having looked at this so much in the light of Israel's experience in the wilderness, you won't be surprised to find that, sadly, Philip did fail. Mark tells us, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Mark tells us, interestingly, that when this miracle of loaves and fishes was being performed, that the hearts of the disciples were hard. Now, that, that is very difficult in a way to understand. We shouldn't take it in, a, in, in the sense that their hearts are really very, very hard. We should only understand it in the sense that, that they were not in the place spiritually to really benefit from what Christ was doing and saying as they ought to have. Now, we all know what that's like. We needn't... We needn't throw stones at these disciples in that way. We all know that. You know what it's like yourself sometimes to come to church and not benefit from it in the way in which you ought. And perhaps you blamed everybody and everything, but the reality was you weren't ready. You hadn't even prepared it for the Word of God, so you didn't really profit from it. So it's not as unusual as that. Think about it for a minute. The Lord had forewarned Peter, Philip, sorry. He had put his mind to thinking about food and preparation for this people. Philip doesn't follow it up. If he does follow it up, he only uses his own initiative to the extent which he used it. It's obvious from the conversation with the rest of the disciples late at night that he hasn't moved further forward with it at all. He wasn't burdened with it to the extent that he came back and said, well, Lord, I, I don't know what the options are. Should it not be you who decides how these people are to be fed? It is not beyond you to feed, feed these people. I, I have no resources. I can't come up with anything. Will you not take the matter in hand and feed this vast multitude? And even when the evening comes, both himself and the rest of the disciples have no answer. No solutions. Oh, we need 200 denarii to feed these people. Really? Is that your knowledge of the one that you're with? Have you not seen him perform miracle upon miracle? Is it not time to stop merely rational thinking about how to feed these people and to put the whole matter onto the Lord and the Saviour and the feeder of his people and say, we have no 
idea how this can be done. But we believe that you can do it. The 200 denarii is like an expression of doubt. It's as though Christ is being unreasonable. 200, 10,000 pounds can't cover this. Well, of course it can't. There are times when situations of need just expose the fact. And, and really, this is what the wilderness is all about. Exposes the fact that all too often Christ is not the first port of call, but the last. The throne of grace is not where we immediately go with our problem. It's where we often go last of all with our problem. Oh, let me see how I can work this out. That's the first response. And only when all else fails do we come to Christ. It's easy for the best of us sometimes to fall in that. Um, the best amongst us, Moses himself, of course, when he was so exasperated. You'll notice how exasperated his language was. It's as though his own faith was giving way. He says, why, why all this? He says, this isn't my people. Says, I, I didn't beget them. Why have you put this people on me? I can't cope with this. And so on it goes. But the Lord is so tender in his response to all these things. He's so patient and he's so gracious. It's just a lack of faith and a lack of dependence upon the wisdom of Christ. A lack of a sense of felt need that they need Christ for everything, small and great. Not our own wisdom first and then him, but first him. First him. Interestingly, later that night, the same problem appears. We'll come to that uh, another time. They're out rowing in the boat in a ferocious storm. They're rowing, not praying. Rowing, but not praying. What, why not praying? Well, just because it takes a long time to get us to first place. I think I said a couple of weeks ago that almost everything the Lord does with us is designed to get us to that place where we exercise faith first. You know, we talk about growing in grace. We all do, rightly so. We need to grow in grace. We think of the fruits of the Spirit. We think of things like meekness, you know, humility. We think of things like kindness. We think of things like self-control, uh, being merciful and being gracious and having a forgiving spirit and all these things. We think of them, rightly so, and, and we want them in our lives. But tell me, tell me, how, how will you get them? Tell me how I am to grow in these things. How is it possible to grow in these things unless we learn the elementary lesson first? That we must go to God with everything. That we go to God for everything. That we make him first more call. And that we thank him for every kindness he shows us. Once we get these building blocks, we can grow. But until these building blocks are there, we just don't seem to grow. We can never grow as long as we're self-reliant and self-sufficient. And that, friends, is a big problem. That's a big problem. And that's why going through the wilderness you seem to come across the same problem again and again. Because it is the same problem, and it's there again and again. Tell me, have you conquered it? Tell me, have you learned to go to God first, in humble reliance and dependence? If so, you'll be growing. 
you'll be growing as a Christian. There's no growth without it. But he is a gracious God, and he's a patient teacher. Bring them to me, he says. And they bring the five loaves and two fish, and I'm sure they're thinking, well, what's the point? And then he says, organise everybody, he says, into groups of hundreds and fifties. And they're all sitting there in hundreds and fifties. The number five appears quite often in this narrative, in the fifty and the five thousand and so on. There's some evidence throughout the Bible that the number five is associated with grace. And if so, it may well be significant here, but I'm not prepared to make too much of it. But I'm quite sure this took a lot of faith on the part of the apostles. I mean, even if they're not spiritually in some respects where they should be, they still have enough faith to be obedient and do what God wants them to do. That's always a good place to be in. At, at least if we're there, you know, things will, by and large, come right. But, you know, it's like organising a feast for food. Groups of hundreds and fifties, 10,000 odd people, five loaves, two fish. What are we doing? Oh, well, you're just doing what the Lord tells you to do. Like Peter did when he had been putting down his net all night for fish. And in the morning, the Lord says, put the net down again. He says, I put it down all night. Night, he says, I've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I let the net down. That's exactly what happens here too. After all, we better get used to the fact that the Lord does a lot with a little. And he likes to do a lot with a little. That's normally his way of working. He uses little things, little groups of people, sometimes little people, to accomplish great things. And he can make the bread of life go very far indeed. He really can. In fact, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have bothered leaving my house this morning. I wouldn't have bothered leaving with the sermon I had or tonight with the sermon I had. If I didn't believe that the Lord can take a little bit of bread and make it go far. If I didn't believe he could multiply it. If I didn't believe he could fill and satisfy souls with just the little morsel that I have. Why else would I leave the house? The Lord is able and he can make a little go very far. And of course the Lord then lifts up the bread and he looks up to heaven just so that all the people can understand to whom he's looking, to whom he's giving thanks. We're told that he blesses God. In other words, he pronounces God blessed. And he gives God thanks for the food and then he begins to break it and to distribute it to the disciples and people in those days just carried little bags with them where you would normally carry a bit of food or something like that they put the food into their own personal baskets and they give it to the people of course the bread symbolizes Christ himself and his work I am the bread of life. We get this bread by believing in him as the sacrifice for sin upon whom we feast. He is our meat and drink. He gives us food for the understanding. He gives us pleasures in life. 
we believe his words. So by faith we receive Christ and we receive all his benefits. Now let me just say a couple of things about the way we receive this bread, just very briefly. First of all, you'll notice that this bread comes from Christ himself, multiplied, let me emphasize, by his own hand or in his own hand. Now I say this because I, I heard a sermon once a few years ago and the sermon had much good in it. It was a good sermon from a good man. Let, let me stress that. It was a good <laughs> sermon from a good man. But he just happened to say in the sermon that he believed that this bread multiplied as the apostles took it out of their knapsack or what basket or whatever we would call it. Now, I, I happen to think that that good man is, was wrong in that. I don't know what you think about it, but I don't think it multiplied in the apostles' hands at all. I'm quite sure, really, that the bread multiplied in the hands of the Lord and not in the hands of the apostles. If there's, if there's even one thing in the language that indicates that, it's the gospel writers tell us that he gave them bread. Now, the, the tense in the Greek there, the imperfect tense, means to keep giving. Now, if it was simply five loaves and two bread, it's a one-off gift. Yes, I mean, how long does that take to distribute? Two seconds, finished. But to write that he kept on giving means that our Lord was constantly engaged in this miracle. In other words, as he was breaking the bread, it just kept appearing. Just, just kept appearing in his hand. It kept appearing at his command and will. There's just more. And when the disciples fill their sack and they go their knapsack and go out with it, and when they come back, the Lord is still breaking. He's still breaking bread. And he's still multiplying the fish. And that reminds us that in whatever way or through whichever person Christ feeds you, it is Christ who feeds you. And the bread that you're receiving hasn't been multiplied by a preacher or even by a friend who's sent to you with a word in season. It's been multiplied by the Lord. It's the Lord himself who has multiplied that bread. And we must make sure that we give glory to the Lord for the multiplication of that bread and the fact that the bread has fed you. He is the bread of heaven. He is, as we said in the morning, the source of our new life and simultaneously the sustenance of that life. He breaks it. And that's why a sermon, sometimes from the word of God, or a portion that you read yourself, so fills your heart. It seems to go above and beyond what the words themselves contain. Well, so they do, because they multiply and they grow inside you. A rich and a full blessing. You'll notice too that this supply of uh, bread was sufficient for them. The evangelists, I think, all tell us that they were filled by what they received. You remember that was true of the manna. They had mistakenly said that they ate bread to the fool in Egypt. That was uh, 
rose-tinted glasses. That was a false memory that the devil was giving them. There were plenty of times they were starving in, in Egypt. Make no mistake about that. But the Lord tells us that when they received the manna, they were full and satisfied. Well, here too, we're, all, we're told by all the disciples that they were filled. Here John says it in verse 10. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. In fact, we're told at the end of verse 11 that when they ate, they ate as much as they wanted. Now, isn't that an interesting thought too? I suppose their, their appetites maybe were different. But according to their appetite, so they received. Isn't there a lesson in that? Jesus at one point said, according to your faith, so be it unto you. According to your faith. Open your mouth, he said, I'll fill it. How great do you want? I'll satisfy it. Do you really want communion and fellowship with me? I'll give it to you. In the degree to which you want it, I will give you. Is that not being taught here? There's nobody hungry after this meal. Everybody's appetite was satisfied. Because that's what Christ does. He fills the hungry soul. Fills the hungry soul. Ask and it will be given you. You'll notice too, by the way, that those who shared the food received it themselves too. Is that not the significance of the twelve baskets? There's a, there's a basket for each apostle. They, they spent themselves in giving the food. And therefore the Lord ensured that they would have some too. It came back to them. Uh, there's a verse in Proverbs that tells us um, there is one who scatters but increases. The generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will be watered himself. And uh, you may obviously apply that quite clearly to a preacher of the gospel but you can apply it to yourself too. Whatever you give for God, you will always get in full measure, pressed down or running over. Cast your bread on the waters and you'll find it after many days. May the Lord grant all of us to partake of this bread. If so, we shall live forever. Let us pray. <coughs> Lord our God we are thankful for the knowledge of him that surpasses the knowledge of everyone else and thankful that he has brought to our soul what no one else could even as Peter himself confessed to whom can we go for you have the words of eternal life. And we are satisfied with them. And we delight in our Saviour. And pray that we would learn to feed upon him more and more. And encourage us when we receive bread to share bread one with the other. And we ask your blessing 
upon your deliberations on your truth. In the precious Redeemer's name. Amen. <coughs> Our closing psalm is Psalm 23. Of course, we know it very well, and it brings before us just the fullness of God's provision for us. It's all about his provision, really, uh, leading us beside the quiet waters and feeding in green pastures. And uh, even in the dark places of our pilgrimage, he prepares a table for us, in the presence of our foes. And last of all, uh, we're told that when we go to God's house, we shall be there forevermore, and of course there we feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. The whole psalm into God's praise.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. <laughs>